everybody. Uh, my name is Janae Meehan. I'm a lead in, I'm the lead in longevity investor at Space VC. We're the world's first VC firm focused on space technology and human longevity. That's how we're building a better tomorrow today. You can check out my bio for more details. And this is Let's Talk Longevity. It's by the Space Technology Longevity Club. We do this every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern, where we talk to thought leaders and uh, founders in, in longevity.
they're doing a great, that's, I think it's a great, great challenge. Uh, I can't wait to see who wins this thing. Um, I'll be the first one to try the food too, so I'm looking forward to it.
So yes, it's very relevant for space. You have a higher uh, radiation issues, radiation damage. You have barometric, that is high and low pressure gradients that cause uh, impacts on the body. Um, you may or may not get the right nutrition, and that's why we're working with the Deep Space Food Challenge uh, with NASA, is to develop optimal nutrition that um, is personalized to an individual. Today, if you go to a grocery store and you get yourself um, a tomato, no one has a clue what the nutrition content of that tomato is. You could get one tomato that's got uh, like nothing in it in terms of uh, nutrition and another tomato right next to it that might have 100x what you need. Who knows? That's got to stop. So that comes from the uh, deep space food challenge from an opportunity standpoint. Very well put, Dave. Thanks. So at Space VC, we, we link these two things together by looking at it this way, right? So space already is and will keep continuing to create value in terms of jobs, products, and services that are going to push humanity forward. But for the visionary entrepreneurs and investors, they need that longevity, right? Number one, the entrepreneurs have to maintain their vision, and the investors have to get the massive payoffs. But not only that, as society in general lives longer, they drive the demand for the latter. And so this is a this is a positive feedback loop that that here at Space BC we're trying to kickstart. And that's how we link these two things together. And space needs longevity and longevity needs space and they both need each other. So that's uh, how we link them together. So uh, I would add to that that space is the uh, pressure cooker that we need. We right. Need it, it, it's the catalyst. We didn't need microcomputers in the 1960s because nobody knew what they could do. But they definitely needed lightweight, high-performance computers for space travel to happen. And now we're the beneficiaries of that. And in fact, Clubhouse couldn't exist without it. If we like Clubhouse, then we have to thank the space program because that's what made it possible. So, same thing with longevity. You're absolutely right. We made that case here many times. Another thing is now the space is becoming privatized. That pressure to deliver value is going to be even higher. So uh, that's the, that's our thesis there. But let me get on to the third question. What is the Methuselah Foundation doing to make longevity a reality? What we do is we look for holes. Uh, I mentioned this on, our, on another uh, clubhouse recently. Uh, we find holes that are needing to be filled that no one else is either seeing and if they do see it they're not filling the hole so um, one day I was walking in Mexico with my young son uh, at least he was young at the time Dane was on my shoulders my wife said something while we were walking on the sidewalk I turned around to look at her and the next thing you know I was in the dark and my son was just at the street level. I fell into a manhole. <laughs> you know, holes are bad. <laughs> That's not very common in Mexico, David. It happened to friends of mine. It's it's very common. Well, holes are bad.
bad, so we need to film or at least cover them. So, one example of a hole at the beginning of our history was if you tried to deliberately, as a scientist, address uh, slowing down or reversing aging, your career would be over. It was just that much of a third rail problem. And so we started a uh, prize that uh, was organized around mice, called the Methuselah Mouse Prize, and the prize was to be issued to any scientific effort that would result in a life extension beyond the maximum lifespan of the experimental mice. And as a result of that, we got lots of press coverage, we got on TV, and, uh, you know, 60 Minutes, and, well, Bob's your uncle, here we are, it took about 10 years, and now everybody kind of looks at like, well, you know, longevity is just, med you know, it's medical and it's going to happen. So that's a complete paradigm shift. That hole is filled. Just last week, we uh, were very pleased to announce with NASA that the vascular tissue challenge had been won. That was another that needed filling, and that was for the creation of microvasculature for engineered tissue, macro tissue. So you can use 3D tissue printers now, not just to create 20 cell thick constructs, but you'll now be able to scale them up into macro thick tissues, and that's another hole that's been filled. So we fill holes. And now, and now you also have your investment vehicle, correct? The Metusella Fund. Sure, yes. So um, we use uh, whatever works. We're, we're agnostic as to what methodology. So we have uh, eight or nine portfolio companies, each of which is working on one aspect of our uh, populist, dis popularly described um, strategies. One of our strategies is uh, get the crud out. So you don't have to find what crud is, you just know it when you see it. So an example of crud is cells that are senescent. I think of them as zombie cells. And so we have a company that was, um, I think, the earliest company um, to do uh, senescent cell ablation uh, as an effort to, you know, build a company. It's called OSHIM, O-I-S-I-M. And spun out of that company, because it was successful scientifically, is Oncocenics, which ablates cancer cells. So think of a cell that has, that is senile. It's just messing up the neighborhood, you know, graffiti on the walls and so forth, promoting inflammation across the entire body. So, you have the ability now to send in a uh, genetic package that will interrogate each cell internally in the cytoplasm. Then, if a particular protein exists, then the package is activated. It's a terminator. It uses the cell's machinery to tell it to kill itself which is what it ought to have done in the first place. So 
once we realized that worked, and it extended uh, mouse lifespan by 20%, maximum lifespan, we then checked its utility on cells where the uh, P53 um, protein was active, which is an indicator that the cell may be cancerous. Normally, P53 would cause the cell to kill itself, but if it doesn't, then it can go rogue. So we created a, a new program, a bio program, that would ablate uh, cells that have P53 or the senescent cell marker, and it cleared solid tumors in 92 hours. Wow. So that's, that's oncogenics. We're also, um, uh, we started a company called Turn Bio, as in turn the clock back. They are able to turn the expression of the, of the genome back years so that each cell resorts back to youth, not to stem cell. You know, a muscle cell stays a muscle cell. So we're using these uh, strategies to help us identify uh, the holes. So in this case, it was um, debug the code. You can think of the epigenome as a wrinkled shirt, and uh, this cocktail irons out the wrinkles or restores the informational integrity of the cell, but doesn't touch the DNA the genome itself, so there's no changes, it's all transient. And you can do it multiple times. Yeah, I'm familiar with TURN, I've kind of spoken to, to Anya and Sergio there, we were looking at TURN for a bit there, uh, and that was before Colesla jumped on. And uh, I've always, yeah, I, I actually met Jay Sarkar back in uh, January 2020 over at the uh, Longevity Conference there. And uh, I, was, uh, I was really fascinated by you know, how you guys were doing it, and I, I, I thought it was brilliant, and this before all this stuff happened, and I just didn't, I couldn't understand why nobody else was getting it, I mean, it's one of the best ways to do it, I guess, I guess you have to be somewhat of a scientist to really understand it, but just the gist of it is enough to put you behind this thing, and uh, I'm looking forward to being uh, test subject number one, David. <laughs> Get in line. <laughs> oh, no, you heard me. <laughs> It's going to be a long line. Uh, you also have all the metric bio, right? Uh, 3D organ printing, which is so, so incredible. Yeah, well, uh, they have, um, in my view, the most powerful, advanced 3D tissue printing printers out there. And they're actually generating a large, you know, decent revenue from it, which is unheard of in a biotech. And, um, yeah, they, they also have... Uh, I would say from a business standpoint, their, their uh, roadmap has legs, meaning that um, uh, they have uh, holographic printing possible now, meaning that the entire structure is not printed like a, like a bubble jet printer, not stereolithographic, which would do one layer at a time, Holographic printing does the entire construct in one fell swoop. So that is going to really shake things up. 
So, yeah, we're very proud of them too. And then we have uh, Isiant, Lyle, and um, you know we we founded Organovo, uh, both of which are using 3D tissue printing as um, replacements for animal models. Ninety-five percent of all successful uh, drug tests in mice fail in humans. Customize your champion. 95%. It's a joke. It's a bad joke. So, Ocean and this unit are using human tissue models that are architecturally uh, have high fidelity to the actual organ. So, in other words, it's not analogs with all of the, uh, let's just call it fiddly bits, that actually make a kidney work, aren't there. So, yes. That's a big break from David. Um, it doesn't seem that way now, but I can see what you're talking about. I've, I've followed the whole bioprinting space for, for some time now, and there's been a lot of challenges, and I think those challenges are being are not being overcome, and hopefully by the end of this decade, it'll be something that we just take for granted. Yeah. Uh, let's change it from hope to promise. Yes. Remember our deadline is twenty thirty. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. Uh Laura, you wanna hit uh David with uh, the fourth one and we can start opening up the stage? Yeah, I well considering everything that you said to David, and this is a two parted question you get. Because of all of these um, companies that you have for instance on your investment and vehicle. What do you see the roadmap of longevity being in the next years, five to ten years? And as the second part, how does this roadmap affect space travel? Okay, so the major hole that needs to be filled in order to make the next ten years happen is a migration away from this, uh, exclusively using animal models for drug and uh, medical device testing and chemicals testing uh, toward human constructs and so uh, we're going to we're putting together a roadmap like the Society of Automotive Engineers did for autonomous driving so they go from level zero where there's a drunk behind the wheel and he's wearing a blindfold <laughs> and then there's level five where you get inside the van in the back, lay down in bed, and you wake up in Key West as the sun is rising. That's level five. So we want to do something similar for um, human tissue testing and validation so that you have different levels and can determine uh, where we are. Right now it's a very fractionated field. There's lots of players, lots of excitement, but there's no standard roadmap. So, what is the roadmap? We, we're making it. And uh, as a matter of fact, I, I just issued the uh, uh, the contract today to get it going. Uh, you know, we we um, we're happy that the. Tissue challenge was solved, and there's lots of judges and assisters and uh, volunteers that 
we're working on that, and so we want to keep them together, and this is an absolutely um, imperative thing that gets done. If this gets done, then animal testing, you know, torturing and killing of animals will, will stop because they won't be any good anymore for this work. Uh, so let's see. Yeah, people don't realize how many mice are being sacrificed every year for science. Mil millions. <laughs> and then you go to the beagles and then the dogs and everything else in between. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. that would be nice to stop too. But the key is by taking this direction, we could um, get the roadmap done and then potentially have another challenge prize and uh, be able to cross map those results to get FDA approvals and vastly superior results. If you test a drug on the human tissue, it will be, oh, I don't know, four or five times more predictive of success than what exists today in animals. So it could take hundreds of billions of dollars and well, maybe half a decade out of the timeline. So what we're trying to do is to intersect our timeline and orbit so that instead of waiting to 2035 for this change, we want to make it 2025. And then those models can be sent on spacecraft to Mars to say, you know, this is what will happen to human kidneys, lungs, livers, and so forth, because we are now able to test it. So I forgot the second question. It was about the impact of the roadmap on our space travel. Ah, I didn't forget. <laughs> That's the impact. Yeah. The impact is that astronauts hopefully will not be microwaved on the way to Mars. Well, that's crucial. <laughs> yeah, <I don't> <laughs> Alright, this, this is a great segue before we open the stage and uh, reset the room. Hi everybody, thanks for coming by. My name is Junaid Nian. I'm a pharmacist turned uh, emerging manager at SpaceBC. I'm the lead investor, uh, lead longevity investor there. We're a first VC firm focused on space technology and human longevity. So you see my bio uh, for more information. And this is less about longevity. It is a weekly show on Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern where we talk about, um, we talk to thought leaders and founders in the longevity space uh, who are making science fiction, science fact. And this week we're talking with David Goble from the Tesla Foundation. And every week I'm also joined by my co-host, Laura. Laura? Thank you, Janaid, and hello, everyone. My name is Laura Mintini, and I am a big advocate in longevity to change the current paradigm of aging, and by longevity, I mean matching your health natural lifespan. I am currently building a direct-to-consumer longevity platform dedicated to the education and better curation of companies doing science-backed products that are going to live, help us live longer with health. And I'm very happy to have David Gobble, who has been in the longe is one of the pioneers in longevity. Um, right now, longevity is hot, and everybody's talking about it. But he's been doing this for a couple of decades, so it's great to have him here and um, have this knowledgeable experience in the field here with us. David, if you want to introduce yourself, um, sure. Yeah, 
a global CEO of Methuselah Foundation. I've got a terrible sense of deja vu just now. Um, yeah, so we're trying to make 90 the new 50 by 2030. And I am 68, so by 2030 I'll be 76. And um, I need to be 50 in terms of my body by that time. And so I'm working toward that. I'm working toward it for my family. And the, the nice thing is that if, if one person can do it, anybody can do it. So we're looking to make that possible for anybody. By the way, that's part of our vision to make 90 to 50 by 2030 for anybody. There's a lot of bodies down here in the audience. The stage is open. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's talk to David. Uh, anybody want to come up? Well, people raise their hand. Oh, Abby, that's amazing. Uh, coming yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. I get people on stage. I wanted to ask um, David, you have a very particular story, personal story on your longevity journey that I really love. And can you talk about it? Because you did a huge lifestyle change. Oh, you're, you're talking about um, last year? Yes. Yeah, so I just, I, I, I was beginning to have health problems. I was uh, 30, 35 pounds overweight. Uh, my eyes, eyesight was deteriorating. I was getting some uh, preliminary signals that I might have some cerebrovascular problems. Um, and I decided it was time to start uh, trying do something about that, so I embarked on an MO with a Wuhan experiment under doctor care, and I had a uh, companion caregiver, um, and uh, took the best evidence-based interventions available, and I've lost 33 pounds. Um, I'm now as, as strong as I was when I was 50. Uh, my eyesight has recovered significantly, and um, I think better. Although you may have a different opinion listening to me, I don't really know. <laughs> no, very right. clear, David. Very clear. <laughs> let's, 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 let's test your let's test the intelligence part, David. Avi, welcome to the stage. What do you have for us tonight, sir? Thanks for coming by. Thanks, uh, Junaid and Laura, for uh, putting me on uh, stage and for organizing this. Uh, David, uh, thank you again for speaking uh, yesterday and staying for the entirety of the show and answering all those wonderful questions. There's tons of feedback about how wonderful a storyteller you are, and I find that that the mark of a good storyteller is how you weave data in with the so the and, and the storytelling kind of helps people remember all of that. So. Thank you again for, for doing that and uh, being so um, open to these discussions. And well, thank you for your gracious compliment. <laughs> but this is this is the compliments from the internet, by the way. So everybody was saying uh, what I'm what I'm what I'm saying. So I'm just kind of summarizing that. But uh, thank you again, Junaid and Laura, for for uh, letting me up. Um, David, I just uh, your your you know filling in the holes analogy and finding those holes analogy. That that is fantastic. And I know, David, we have talked about this before, Laura, we have talked about this before, so this is old hat, but I wanted to discuss uh, the, the problem with the biomarker, 
So we saw the rapid development of vaccines for COVID because there was a clear biomarker, uh, as in how many people uh, were getting infected in the treatment group. And you would have, you, you could test the strength of the vaccine by the number of the people that were hospitalized and the number of people who died in the treatment group. That's a very, very clear biomarker. You do not need any biochemistry knowledge. You're doing nothing. Um, I did my PhD in, in just, you know, keratinocyte and fibroblast biomarkers of aging. Uh, that's just two cells virus. Um, David, what do you see uh, as the future of human biomarker aging? Because if we had a robust set of biomarkers that all scientists, all clinicians agreed on, then we could just have anybody try out, whether it be green tea or gene therapy, on the same set of biomarkers, and whether it be MHRA in the UK or FDA in the US, everybody would have to give in and, and agree that this human who is, for example, you in 2030, 76 years old, is actually now 50 years old and has the same uh, life insurance risk profile as a 50 year old. So how do you see the future of biomarkers of aging so that we can actually robustly test um, anti-aging treatments uh, in the clinic uh, proceeding? Well, <clears throat> I, uh, I think it's an order of operation issue. While people are falling off the cliff, it's not the time to determine, you know, what their blood pressure is. I think that we have, um, over the next decade, we're going to be doing things in parallel, but if we focus too much on biomarkers, we will miss um, opportunities to make great breakthroughs without necessarily knowing exactly what the numbers were to begin with. Uh, may I give you an example? For, what, a hundred years, nobody really knew why aspirin worked. But the fun thing was, it did work. In the case of uh, rapamycin, it seems to be extremely effective in many, many positive ways. But nobody really has a proven theory of its uh, operational characteristics. Related to aging, there are really good theories, but Bobby, I don't care. Does it work or does it not work? So I'm absolutely in favor of biomarkers, but only if they don't interfere with the low hanging fruit. This fruit has been low hanging for a long time. It's just that people haven't cared enough to pick it. Because if we live in a capitalist society, which I'm in favor of all kinds of methodologies to make advancements, including capitalism. But if you can't make a buck, you're not going to pick the fruit, even if it's standing there, even if it's going to make people healthier. It's just not going to get picked. So I, uh, yeah, I, I would, I would prefer that we not be distracted. Um, I'm reminded of a very, very uh, wonderful fellow who was a pioneer in the uh, area of uh, longevity, and he said the one thing we need to do is to figure out you know, how to measure biological aging. And he convinced Congress to spend money on this, millions and millions and millions, and he was always just about to get there. My feeling is the error bars are too large to be useful. So if you're 
looking at a five to seven year error bar, plus or minus, well, that's not good enough. or minus five to seven thousand feet that might not be good enough to land the aircraft so um, i'm in favor of continuing the research but i'm very much not in favor of it taking over the room of the conversation and taking too much away uh, from investment in other areas you'll notice that in our portfolio there are no buyer marker investments they're all measure it later. And I totally understand people have different opinions than I, I do, and they're just as valid as mine. I, I'm, I'm Dave, and I finally shut up. <laughs> we don't want you to shut up too long, David. With that said, Michael, welcome to the stage. What do you got for David? Uh, hey, thanks for uh, having this meeting. Um, David, I wanted to ask you, uh, what are some commercially viable products that will be to market that go beyond lifestyle changes, such as calorie restriction, et cetera, that yield that you think will uh, yield results, uh, valid results for visible um, benefits for longevity, et cetera? Uh, I would say that if you're not yet 40 plus years old, that you should just do the things that you said you didn't want to talk about. If you're 40 years and older, you might consider getting with a licensed physician and talk to them about rapamycin, metformin, and in terms of other interventions you can do, um, you could uh, do fisetin, um, episodically, and investigate that, and uh, melatonin, you don't sleep, you don't get repaired. Um, and what you might also consider is a fluoride flush. Calcium is preferentially attracted to the pineal gland. The pineal gland exudes, creates and exudes melatonin. If it's full of calcium, it stops producing enough melatonin and you don't sleep properly. Get the fluoride out of your system over the course of eight weeks, the calcium will leach back out and the pineal gland will be recovered and natively produce uh, melatonin. And also get 20 minutes of sunlight daily, actually on your skin. We were not designed to wear clothes. That might be a clue. All right, that's good advice. Uh, I'm a computer, I, I work on computers all the time, so I probably need to get out of my work. <laughs> All right, awesome. Awesome. Dan, I got a question for you. So, regards to biopreinting, we're talking about printing tissues. What do you think about in terms of when can we start printing organs and how long do you think it'll take to we think that you know, we can start doing that readily? And not only that, if say, for example, you know, somebody's a uh, wreck and we need to replace anywhere, whatever it may be. Do you think that we'd be able to put, print that in a fast enough manner, way it would matter? By then, I'd say about 10 years? Um, I'm going to say five years. And 
what will appear first is ex vivo and in vivo patches. Ex vivo liver patches, meaning that the printer will create a patch that will then be surgically attached to a sick liver and the patch will be essentially uh, an assistant, a crutch to the liver that may even help it recover entirely because the liver does regenerate itself if it's not too far gone. So liver patches by 2025. And um, this is a little bit more uh, speculative, but one could imagine uh, in vivo directly printing into um, areas of the heart that are you know, subject to a prior heart attack do a uh, CT scan, high-resolution CT scan on the heart, and then uh, print in the uh, bio-tissue. That's very speculative, but I can see it coming. That, that might be more like 10 years, to be honest. Uh, the heart is a lot tougher because it moves like crazy, and it's going to last forever. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I think that um, if NASA does do a second edition of the vascular tissue challenge from 2025 will certainly happen because the microvasculature uh, problem has been solved twice. I like your, I like your speculative answer, by the way.
you could use human tissue models to accurately predict the efficacy and safety of a small molecule, for instance, the very first time you tried it. And that, that the FDA had so much confidence in the model that they said, hey, go straight for phase three. How would that change things? It would be earth-shatteringly cool. That's our goal. Wish me luck. You're gonna need luck. I think I'm at Endeavor and I'm wishing it to you absolutely. So, so here's the thing to keep in mind. Um, the people in government are not the boogeymen, generally speaking, that the people, you know, seem to cast them as. They're, they're kind of like just, they're sitting ducks at the, at the back of a shooting gallery. Um, but there are some very, very dedicated, very highly qualified people who want to do good and who are often responsible for the good. In 2010, for instance, the fellow who's responsible for the positive rapamycin result was not the scientists. It was a uh, director at the National Institute of Aging who decided, screw it, I'm gonna spend the money, we're gonna test this rapamycin thing in three different universities at the same time and we're gonna find out. That was a career risk he took. And we gave him a Methuselah Prize in 2010 for his career. Second bananas make the world run. That man deserved it. Another example of the second banana is Basil O'Connor. Nobody ever heard of him, but polio would not have been cured without him. He was the man who worked for 30 years for free, a friend of Franklin Roosevelt, who was the one who insisted that they stop getting ready and just begin to deliver the vaccine. And honestly, I was born in 1952. I didn't get polio probably because of that man. And nobody's ever heard. So, you know, there's a flip side to every point. And I can tell you that the people who were the judges on the vascular tissue challenge, many of them were, from NIH, one of the judges of the Deep Space Food Challenge is the deputy director of the FDA. They don't get paid for this. They're doing it as a volunteer because they want to see progress. So I will get off my soapbox Sorry to interrupt. I thought you were finished speaking because you went out of it. Just to ask, do you expect the FDA to approve rapamycin for age reversal? I don't expect it. Expect that they they will stop people from using it either. You can use it off label. As a physician, you can do the prescripting. Agreed. I I know that quite well. But what I'm saying is, your goal so that anyone can have access to this. It's a pretty limited market. So how, in your vision, can you go to 2035 and break through in that vision? Um, actually, it's 2030, so that makes it even harder. So one of the uh, issues is distribution. You are a true pioneer, Catherine, and I, I applaud you for that. 
there needs to be many, many, many more copyrights. I believe that there will be. And although it's not, I don't have a particular plan at this point, because um, I want the human model thing to happen first. You know, again, order of operation. Hopefully, um, when there are more and more treatments available, that people recognize are superior, There is no barrier to prescribing rapamycin if you are a licensed physician. You can do it. In fact, you do do it. Well, uh, yeah, so David, one of the companies that we spoke with way early in the days of Let's Talk Longevity was with Inara Isman from uh, Aegis RX. So Aegis RX is running the pro trials for everybody who wants to know, and they're a crowdfunded trial for rapamycin, which is uh, something I never thought would ever happen, but it's happening. So it's it's starting to accelerate. And Aegis RX is open to this. Anybody can, can get rapamycin from Aegis RX. If you go to their website, and you see the price point is quite democratized. It's about anybody can get access to it. If the only thing they're stopping you is if, you know, your comfort level 